Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Sarah Fenske. One month ago, it might have seemed unthinkable that state and local governments would force the shutdown of restaurants, shops, schools, and even churches. Yet here we are. What once seemed unthinkable has become the new reality. But not everybody is agreeing to the new restrictions. One golf course tried to challenge the orders to close. In other cases, it's churches that are vowing to stay open. And the issues involving that are only the tip of a very big iceberg of legal questions. And joining us today to discuss as many of these issues as we can are two legal experts. The first is Dave Rowland. He's the director of litigation for the Freedom Center of Missouri. Uh, Dave, welcome back to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Sarah. And we're also joined by Michael Wolf. He's a former Chief Justice of the Missouri Supreme Court. He's also a professor and Dean Emeritus with St. Louis University Law School. Uh, Michael, welcome. Thank you. It's nice to be with you. So we're dealing with so many issues here, and I'm curious about the legal underpinning for all of them. Uh, Michael, let's start with you. What gives the government the right to order a private business to close? Well, actually, uh, the the legal principles are uh, are kind of infrequently used, but here we are in the middle of it. Um, when and because there are a number of things that that you would in ordinary times think of as being violations of your constitutional rights, mm-hmm. which include the right to travel between states, the right to travel generally, uh, the right to associate, the right to freedom of association, the right to go to your church and worship as you wish. Uh, all of those uh, take a back seat to the uh, uh, when there's a something that's facing a, a serious public health threat. So the courts see these challenges, and there will be challenges to these things. And uh, maybe I should let David speak before this, but I kind of had three rules that I uh, guidelines for how we look at these things, and I'll. I'll do them really briefly. Sure. Uh, for, first of all, in an emergency, as in a, as when, a, when there's a war or a pandemic that threatens the health or safety of the people, the government's going to do what the government's going to do. Hmm. And we'll find out later, maybe years later, whether it was constitutional. Now, there's things in our history that we can go into that, that, that show that. Uh, my, my rule number two is that many of the acts of government during these unusual times are unconstitutional. But I'd have to tell you, see rule one. Uh, And then I have my third rule, which is really not a legal uh, principle, but I think it's probably true in sort of public health context, is that everything we do before a pandemic will seem alarmist. Afterwards, everything we have done may seem inadequate. So there Mm -hmm. we are. And the law tries to fit itself into that, and we have principles uh, that we need to remember. We need libertarians, conservatives, and liberals to remember our values because we're going to be sacrificing some of them in in this time. That's interesting. And and those three rules, um, you know, my the wheels in my mind are turning right now, thinking about all these things that could apply. Dave, would you say those three rules are a pretty, pretty good place to start? Um, I think that they are a good statement of reality. Um, you know, again, the the frustration that so many people who look at this from an ideological perspective have is that um, understanding that the government's going to do what it's going to do doesn't diminish 
um, those constitutional violations. And and I have got lots of people who for the last few weeks have been kind of saying, oh, we've got to go out there and we've got to challenge these things. We can't let this sort of governmental overreach um, happen. And it's been difficult, but I've had to tell them, you've got to understand what the limits are of what we can do legally, of what we can accomplish legally to prevent these sorts of things in advance. And I've, I've tried to temper expectations and let them know um, there will be challenges, uh, and there will be uh, certainly, uh, hopefully, uh, a very thorough hearing regarding those challenges. Um, but we're not going to be able to get those things heard right now. It's it's going to take time, uh, and it's probably going to be after the pandemic ends that we start getting some of the legal responses uh, nailed down. And so that fits right into what Michael Wolf was saying, that the government is going to do what, what it's going to do. And that might well be unconstitutional, but that doesn't really stop it in real time. Michael, is, is that uh, sort of an I, accurate summary? Uh, I think you're exactly right. And uh, I've got one instance uh, fairly very recent uh, that I think almost proves that point. You know, during the 2014-2015 Ebola scare, uh, Connecticut uh, quarantined an asymptomatic, that a person without symptoms, a Liberian family uh, visiting a family in Connecticut. Uh, they went to court. They sued the, the governor and the state health officials. Uh, the federal district court threw the case out. Uh, two years ago, that case was argued in the Court of Appeals that covered the U.S. Court of Appeals that covers Connecticut. Uh, that case has not yet been decided. So here we are two years later. They're still thinking about it. Uh, it would, by the way, it would be nice to have uh, a Second Circuit uh, Court of Appeals clarification <laughs> of that principle. But it come in handy right about now. <laughs> came in handy right now, but, but, thankful, but you know, so, so, so we don't have it. Boy, that, that seems like the court is a little bit derelict in his duty right there. I mean, that was, that was quite some time ago, but I guess that well, just is what it is. They're, they're, thinking, of, they're thinking about it. <laughs> well, <laughs> and that's, I think that's they're going to continue them. to think about it until the Ebola scare went away, and then they're still thinking about it. So, so the government can do these things. What the government has done now, you know, they have shut down um, all these things for our safety. Does that right, that their ability to do that, does that continue indefinitely? Say they took what has now been about three weeks and they turn this into three months. At some point, um, is there some limit where the courts would get involved? I think that it, it's possible. Part of the challenge that we have right now is that the courts themselves are working at a reduced capacity. Mm. Um, you know, in, in very significant ways, the litigation process, which already um, can move rather slowly, it's, it's being slowed even further just because of the challenges of this situation. I, I want to point out that... Um, just because the government can do things in the short term, I don't want anyone to go away with the impression that there will be no consequences for, for governmental overreach. So, for example, if a court later determines that a policy that the government put in place was improper, uh, there may be damages uh, or, or rather you know, financial consequences um, as a result of, of that overreach. Uh, there could be forward-looking injunctions that would prevent future overreach in similar situations. So I don't want people to, to walk away thinking, well, the government's just going to do what it's going to do regardless. Let's say that the Second Circuit had issued a ruling in the Ebola case. Um, that ruling would then provide guidance that might 
actually restrict what governments can do in this particular situation. It might require them to jump through certain hoops mm. before they could impose certain policies. Um, so, so I don't want people to think that it's just kind of a fatalistic, let's all throw our hands up and accept um, that the government's going to do whatever it wants to do. There, there may yet be um, some consequences legally for, for their overreach. It's just it's going to take some time to get there. Hmm. I, I agree. And uh, I might also add that the, uh, in the Missouri law, in the statutes, uh, the governor is given a vast array of powers uh, to deal with emergencies. He can set up rules. He can assign personnel. He can give orders to law enforcement. Uh, he can, quote, seize, take, or requisition uh, people's property to the extent necessary to carry about the most effective protection of the public. But there, And there's a catch-all. The governor can perform and exercise such other functions, powers, and duties as may be necessary to promote and secure the safety and protection of the civilian population. That's a broad grant of authority, but there's also, if you take property, later on there might be compensation for the taking of property because that's also in the state statute. It is also in the statutes that the governor is to declare the end of the emergency and if they're not happy with what the governor does, the legislature can end a period of emergency. So there is, hmm. there's really two branches of government involved in that. And David, you might have some comments on that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the, the one thing that I would add to what you say is that the emergency power statute also gives the governor the power to suspend certain statutes um, during a state of emergency. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the things that um, that was invoked when the governor delayed municipal elections. They were supposed to be held uh, in a week or two in April, and he invoked this power to suspend the ordinary statutes to move the election date into June. Um, I personally question whether the emergency statute actually gives him the power to suspend elections like that, but the fact of the matter is the courts have allowed him to do it. Hmm. Um, so, uh, so yes, the governor's power is exceptionally broad. One thing that I, I would hasten to add, though, is just because a statute gives the governor that sort of authority, that does not necessarily mean that the governor would exercise that authority in a constitutional way. Um, there is still the possibility that a challenge could be brought to the way that the governor uh, employs that power, and it might eventually be found to be unconstitutional. I want to go to the phone lines here in a minute. We have a caller um, who actually has a, a call that I think is, is very on point to this question about elections. But I do want to um, let people know, if you're listening to this, if you have a question for our legal experts, you can give us a call. We're looking strictly for questions related to um, rights and the Constitution um, as it relates to coronavirus. But you can call us at 314-382-8255. That's 382-TALK. Or you can send us a tweet at STL on air or email us at talk at stlpublicradio.org. Uh, Rebecca is calling from University City. Rebecca, hi, you're on St. Louis on the air. Hi, um, my question is this. Um, what uh, constitutional protection exists uh, for national elections in the time of a health crisis? Um, a very classic thing for a dictatorial leader to do is to just either cancel or put off mm -hmm. very important elections like the one we have in November. So that's my question. Thank you. Rebecca, that's a great question. Um, and Michael, thoughts on that? Well, the, uh, you know, as you know, elections are, are conducted by the states. 
Uh, I think it would be doubtful that the president would have the authority uh, to postpone or, or, uh, or cancel an election. Uh, that would certainly be something I think that, 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 that certainly the legislative branch, if the legislative branch doesn't step in, that the courts uh, ought to step in. Uh, how that election is going to be conducted is something that we're going to be discussing over the next uh, probably some months mm-hmm. about whether we should, the states should go to mail-in ballots, whether the, whether the federal uh, Congress should enact statutes and encourage the states to uh, protect the electoral process. That's a huge issue going forward. Uh, but we have to remember that we are a collection of 50 states, and we are a, a federal republic. And so the states have sovereignty, and they have authority over their elections. Now, the feds obviously have some a lot to say about it. Uh, but it starts fundamentally with the states. Hmm. So the, the federal government would not have the ability to just shut down, say, the presidential election. That would have to be um, 50 states coming to that conclusion. That's a, that's a little bit heartening to that's, hear. That's that's my reading of it, David. Then maybe you disagree. Um, I, I do not disagree. And uh, if I recall correctly, the Constitution actually sets in stone uh, the dates of the presidential terms. Uh, and I yeah. believe it also specifies when the elections are to be held. So so I think short of a constitutional amendment, um, no one has any authority to to ignore uh, the, the dates that the Constitution already puts in place. The question, as Mike pointed out, is how do we conduct those elections to make mm-hmm. sure that they are uh, that they are fair and that they are lawfully conducted? Um, and and you know, there's a lot of good questions circulating about this because, particularly for jurisdictions that rely on touch screens, um, there's a lot of concern that if you have mm-hmm. folks who are infected with the virus and they use those touch screens, then anyone who follows along after them might potentially uh, come in contact with the virus at that point. So it's not a, a great idea to have that form of an election during a pandemic. The question is whether the states will act quickly enough to allow for alternative means of conducting an election. And there are some states that uh, rely almost entirely on mail-in ballots, by the way. So um, I spent a little bit of time in Washington state, and they conduct their elections entirely by mail. Um, It is a viable way of conducting an election. However, Missouri law currently does not provide for that. And so Mm -hmm. we would need to make some adjustments to Missouri law so that we could do that. Um, I think it is well worth considering whether we should make those those adjustments. I will say a lot of conservatives are really, really opposed to that kind of a change, though. So it may be a steep hill to climb for the Missouri legislature to move to a mail-in system. They Mm -hmm. may insist on something more closely resembling our existing system. So there could be a real fight brewing over that. Uh, We're talking to Mm -hmm. Dave Rowland of the Freedom Center of Missouri, as well as Michael Wolf, the former Chief Justice of the Missouri Supreme Court. We need to take a quick break. We're going to come back and continue this conversation. Uh, We have a a number of callers eager to join us and a lot more to discuss. So this is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. 
If you have a smart speaker, you have access to the entire world of NPR and St. Louis Public Radio. All the latest news and all the captivating stories. Activate our voices with yours by telling your smart speaker to play St. Louis Public Radio. Welcome back. We're exploring constitutional law questions in this pandemic. And my guests today are two legal beagles with expertise on just this topic. Uh, the first is Michael Wolf. He's the former Chief Justice of the Missouri Supreme Court and professor and dean emeritus with St. Louis University School of Law. And I should note, today is also his birthday. Happy birthday, Michael Wolf. <laughs> Thank you. And it's appropriate, isn't it? It is. <laughs> and I'm also joined today by Dave Rowland. He's the Director of Litigation for the Freedom Center of Missouri. Um, in a minute here, I'm going to go to the phone lines. But first, I want to um, touch briefly on First Amendment issues because I know those are just so important. And earlier this week, our producer, Evie Hemphill, talked to John Inazu. He's the Sally D. Danforth Distinguished Professor of Law and Religion at Washington University. The Atlantic recently published an essay he wrote titled Close the Churches. And he says he feels that way even as he's the member of a church himself. Here's what he said about that personal connection. Sunday morning worship is a key part of my week, but I also think that it's important for Christians and others right now to be thinking about love of neighbor, and probably the best, most tangible way we can show that love is by not gathering in person right now until circumstances change. And John Inazu's sense is that the government is well within its bounds to tell churches that they cannot meet. Uh, Here's what he said about that earlier this week. This is, at this point, a matter of policy discretion. A a, a shutdown order does not need to include churches in it, but if it does, then churches are almost certainly required to comply with that order. And the reason is that the government can always articulate a set of interests that are going to limit any constitutional right, and religious liberty is no different than any other right in that instance. You're, You're not going to have a religious group that can engage in human sacrifice or that can, uh, use cocaine in its services. So there are always limits that government can set on religious practice. And the question is, how compelling and how carefully tailored is the government restriction? And in this case, it seems like these shutdown orders are both extremely compelling, extremely urgent, and well-crafted to fulfill the government's desired need. That's John Inazu. He's a professor of law and religion at Washington University. Dave Rowland, do you agree with that, that at this point um, the government is is well within its rights to tell churches they can't gather? I actually do not agree, Um, and here's why. Uh, So the the orders that are being put out right now by many governments at the state and local level are complete bans on gatherings, and those bans – do not take into account the potential measures that a church can take to uh, exercise social distancing within the context of a gathering. So a couple days ago, um, a county in Florida arrested the pastor of a church who had held a gathering where I believe they had about 500 people. Um, But the church had purchased an air filtration system uh, that is designed to to remove uh, pathogens from the air, and they had family groups engaged in social distancing. So a family group could sit together, Hmm. but then they had to have six uh, feet separation between them and any other family group that attended. Um, So they, in fact, were 
taking measures to socially distance, to be responsible in the way that they were meeting while still um, exercising their free exercise of religion. Um, and so I actually think that that where you've got a law that prohibits a gathering, even where um, they they are abiding by the general rules of social distancing, I, I think that you have a law that is not narrowly tailored um, to justify the the restriction. Yeah, a similar situation might be if people wanted to gather to protest, uh, per- perhaps to protest these policies. Mm-hmm. If they gathered in a large group outside and they all had six feet between any of the participants, um, I don't think that you could enforce a law constitutionally that would deny them their freedom to assemble and protest under those circumstances. Again, the devil's in the details. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think that generally speaking, these kinds of quarantine orders and cordon orders, uh, let's face it, they have a very long history in the American and English legal traditions. It goes back at least 500 years. But courts have also said you've got to narrowly tailor these to suit the emergency. And if you fail to narrowly tailor, then they are unconstitutional. Michael Wolf, what are, what are your thoughts on this uh, matter involving the First Amendment? I, I agree with the professor, but I also think that the situation that David mentioned is a lot closer case where they're hmm. trying to act responsibly. Uh, but I, it seems to me that, that the uh, that the general rules are going to have to prevail. Uh, I, I saw that Mayor de Blasio threatened to shut down the churches in New York City if they didn't abide by it. But let me say something really pertinent to all of this, and that is there's very little actual legal compulsion in, in a lot of these things. I mean, we are doing these things in St. Louis County and St. Louis City because our because our local leaders have said so. Mm-hmm. The governor has not yet invoked his authority to have a statewide uh, stay-at-home uh, practice. And there's a number of business leaders and others who are urging him to do that, especially the people in the metro area who see that if there are bigger problems in rural Missouri than we might expect, uh, because these orders are not in place, that they're going to be coming into the and using the health facilities that are available much more widespread in the uh, metro region. So there's a so there's a serious issue here. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other uh, the other aspect of this is, and I think we should be really careful when we're talking about the First Amendment, is that in some more autocratic societies, uh, the government has taken control of the information. Mm-hmm. That cannot happen here. That is something the courts should immediately deal with, because when we get into situations like this, these efforts to control a virus won't work unless leaders tell us the truth. And if the leaders aren't telling us the truth, then the doctors have to tell us the truth. But the word has to get out. Um, And the other thing that we're countering in this uh, epidemic, and you'll see it, this pandemic, is that the Internet is being used by evil people to spread false rumors. I saw one couple of reports that there's a lot going around on the Internet about the prospect of martial law. Mm-hmm. That's nonsense. Uh, yes, you can have martial law. We had martial law in Missouri during the Civil War, but it's the, out, it's the outgrowth of a military occupation. We're not talking about a military occupation, but a lot of people are believing the kind of crap that comes over the Internet that looks like real news. 
Michael, um, of the news, you were saying it's very important to make sure the government doesn't shut down or try to take control yeah. of, of news gathering. Do you think if the government, say, said, hey, for your own safety, you newspaper, you can't publish anymore, do you think you would see the courts move swiftly to stop that? God bless the Pentagon Papers case, remember? Mm-hmm. No, maybe you don't. You're too young. But, uh, hey, I, when, I know about when it. The government, <laughs> yeah, but when the government tried to enjoin uh, the New York Times and other newspapers from publishing the Pentagon Papers for the good of the country, for the, the prior restraint, the mm-hmm. United States Supreme Court said, no, you can't do that. And I think the same principle ought to be applied here. Uh, and I think whether you're a liberal or a conservative or a libertarian or whatever, I think that that value of of having information out there Mm -hmm. is really critical. Well, as a um, journalist myself, I'm I'm very happy to hear that there's a very clear precedent here. Let's go to the phone lines. Um, John is calling from South City. Um, John, hi, you're on St. Louis on the Air. Hi, how are you? Um, Just want to say happy birthday, Mr. Wolf, first of all. (laughs) Thank you. And second of all, I'm on speakerphone. Is this okay for you guys? Uh, at this point, yes. Um, we'll let you know if that changes. Uh, but what's your question for our guests? Okay, I was wondering about uh, legal ramifications about using some things like reasonable prudence versus public safety and keeping a business open and violating uh, it's almost impossible to work with certain people or a number of people in, in a building without coming within six feet of people while working. So... Um, during kind of legal ramifications. So you're saying a business that stays open um, and says they're they're keeping people within distances are they potentially in legal peril for public endangerment? Is is that right? Yes, using reasonable prudence, not not using reasonable prudence. Not using reasonable prudence. Encouraging uh, people and encouraging them to come to work. Mm, uh, that's a, that's a great question. I wonder if either of my guests have have thoughts on that and want to jump in here. I think part of it depends on whether the um, whether the business has been determined to, to be an essential business. Um, most of these orders are exempting what they are considering essential businesses. But if you're talking about a business that is non-essential or that the government has deemed non-essential, uh, then yes, if they're still having people come in and and work, then they would potentially be running afoul of the stay-at-home orders and could potentially face legal consequences for doing so. I want to point out um, that in addition to the criminal penalties for violating a stay-at-home order, um, there are also potential civil issues uh, with with people who are requiring others to put themselves in danger. So, for example, if a business owner says, uh, I'm going to require you to do X, um, even though there's a potential risk, if you then get coronavirus um, and suffer damages as a result, uh, the worker might be able to have their employer held liable for hmm. uh, for that requirement, um, so that's that's something that people should keep in mind. And as a libertarian, you know, I think that that's how a lot of these should be issued. Uh, how a lot of, of these issues should be handled. I would prefer to see it handled in civil lawsuits rather than criminal penalties being imposed on people. But that's a philosophical issue, not a constitutional one. And and, and as a matter of fact, to that point. Uh, the statute that gives the governor all these uh, powers uh, later on in the statute. So the legal uh, remedy for it is that the violation is deemed a misdemeanor. Hmm. Uh, now, you can get into the felony areas if you're doing something that violates some uh, statute that is already in play. I think of the guy uh, during the 93 flood who uh, 
broke the levy. I think he's still in prison. So hmm. there's a number of ways that you can harm the public that might violate other statutes, but simply violating these orders uh, doesn't, uh, they're not severe penalties, they're more social penalties. And, and I looked at the city charter and I looked at the county charter and I didn't see anything in there about these kinds of things other than the fact that these are these are people who are running our governments and they're telling people this is what we need to do and people are obeying. I think that, hmm. that that's really good on us uh, for the amount of obedience that we're doing to these things. But it sounds like you're saying as much as um, these sound like, you know, these are very good rules and, and maybe the, the state governor should get in on this, they might be ripe for a legal challenge and that these local governments don't necessarily have the power to do what they're doing? Well, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go that far. Uh, but the, the sanctions that might be available to local government are not as direct mm-hmm. uh, in the law as the sanctions for violating a governor's action. They'll have a hard time and, enforcing I, this, basically, if somebody wanted to well, get Well, that's right. Unruly. And, of course, then the problem is, of course, state to state. I mean, you've got a governor in Florida who wouldn't cancel spring break. Mm-hmm. And so you had all those people down there partying it up in a state full of old people who are highly vulnerable to this. I mean, you know, that. so state to state, you're going to see some remarkable uh, disparities in terms of the rate of infection and so forth, depending on how seriously the states and localities took it. I mean, I'm grateful that uh, uh, Steve Ellman and, and uh, Sam Page and Lyda Cruson are three leaders of our three uh, uh, counties here and also the governor of Illinois uh, for his whole state has uh put in place stay-at-home orders because I think that's going to diminish the uh, number of cases or at least spread the cases out over a way that can be handled by our health system. And, you know, unfortunately, we are out of time today, but there are so many things we've talked about today that I think it's just going to be really interesting to see how all this plays out, whether the governor does eventually take action and whether there are legal challenges to all these things that we are now um, somewhat following the guidelines. I have a feeling I'm going to have to have the two of you back. I hope you'll be willing to do that. Happy to do Just it. let me know when. I'll be there. I love the sound of that. So, Well, Michael Wolf, uh, former Chief Justice of the Missouri Supreme Court, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. I appreciate being here. And Dave Rowland of the Freedom Center of Missouri, uh, thank you as well. It's a pleasure. Anytime. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, providing more than 41,000 jobs in the production of wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details at ChooseWood.com.